1741, a devout Anglican compiled a set of scripture texts and sent them to the greatest composer in England at the time in the hopes that George Frederick Handel would set those texts to music. Now, apparently, Jennings had provided the libretto for other oratorios by Handel before this moment, but this one was different. He inscribed these lines from Virgil on the compilation of those texts. Let us sing of greater things. Up to that point, Handel had sung of ancient heroes like Julius Caesar or Saul, the first king of Israel. But now Jennings suggested that Handel should sing of greater things. Let's sing of the greatest thing that's ever happened. Let's sing about the story of redemption through the long-awaited Messiah. And within a few short weeks, Handel produced one of the greatest oratorios that the world has ever heard. But apparently, Charles Jennings was initially disappointed. He scribbled a note to one of his friends saying that Handel's Messiah was pretty good, but it could have been better. And he was a little bit miffed that his friend Handel had not taken him up on some of the suggestions that he had offered to improve the composition, which just goes to show you can't please everybody. But as we celebrate the return of Central's annual performance of Handel's Messiah this Saturday at 7.30, of which we just received a preview, we thought that it would be fitting during this Advent season to look more closely at those scripture texts that tell the story of Messiah and which made Handel's work so famous. Chris Hildebrand began last week by introducing those words of comfort from Isaiah 40 that open Handel's Messiah. But today we turn to two somewhat terrifying texts from the prophets Haggai and Malachi. So as we do, I'd like us to consider three things. I'd like us to consider what these texts tell us about the promise of the Lord's coming, the warning of the Lord's coming, and the hope of the Lord's coming. So if you'd like, let me invite you to open a Bible to Haggai chapter 2 and Malachi chapter 3. You'll find this towards the very back of the Old Testament. It's also printed in your order of worship. In honor of Handel, I'll be reading the King James Version today. This is Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, and Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Get once a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, as I said at the beginning of our service, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. 
So this is the time in the church year in which we celebrate the two comings of Jesus. On the one hand, we look back to Jesus' first coming when he came in humility and weakness as a vulnerable baby. But at the same time, we look forward to Jesus' promised second coming when he will return in power and strength as the risen and reigning king to make all things new. And for that reason, it's very fitting that we read Haggai and Malachi during this Advent season because they point us to both comings of Jesus. So first, let's consider the promise of the Lord's coming. Here's what you need to understand by way of background. 600 years before the birth of Christ, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was burned and the people were forced into exile in Babylon. But a couple decades after that, the Babylonian Empire was defeated by the Persians. And the Persians allowed at least many of the Jewish exiles to return to their homeland. But when they do go back home to Jerusalem, they're a little bit disappointed. They're home, but they're not home. They have returned from exile, and yet they still feel like they are cut off from life the way that it is meant to be lived. Their fields had to be replanted, their ancestral homes had to be repaired, and the temple had to be rebuilt. And that was Haggai's focus. He encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. But once they get started, three weeks into the work, they realize that this second temple is not going to be nearly as impressive as the first original temple that King Solomon had built. And on top of that, they're dealing with drought and crop failure and, you guessed it, inflation. The value of their money continued to decrease, and so it seemed that no matter how much energy they expended towards rebuilding their lives, it was never enough. And so they're home, but they're not quite home. They still feel like they're living in exile, cut off from the way that life is meant to be lived. They still feel like they're living under the curse. And it seems to me that many of us might likewise feel like we're still living in exile, especially during this time of year. We often sing that this is the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all. And yet, it doesn't always feel that way. It's easy, especially during Christmas time, for us to compare ourselves to others. And we assume that everyone else is so happy, which makes us wonder, well, why am I so miserable? We tend to ignore the positives in our own lives and exaggerate the, the good in other people's lives. And we focus on what we're missing or what we don't have or what we haven't achieved. And that just leaves us feeling ever more dissatisfied and inadequate. Or this might be the first Christmas that you have to spend alone or without someone you love. It may be that you're going to go home for the holidays, but it doesn't feel quite like home because of the strain of broken relationships or because of the stress of a troubling diagnosis. It's cancer. And so we might find ourselves saying, so this is Christmas? If God is so good, why is life so hard? 
No matter how hard we try, no matter how much energy we expend, it might feel like it's never enough. We might feel like we too are cut off from the way in which life is supposed to be lived. We feel like we're under a curse, like we too are still living in exile. But if that's the case, well, then we need to hear the promise of the Lord's coming. Because God knows. God knows that even when his people return from their exile, and God knows that even when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean that everything is suddenly okay. No, there is a greater restoration coming. And that's what Haggai tells us about in chapter 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once, a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come. Well, what does this mean? What does it mean for God to shake the nations? It's an evocative image. It means that God is going to shake things up. When God shakes the nations, it means that he is going to bring about massive change. Hebrews 12 tells us that whenever God speaks, as he did at Mount Sinai, the earth shakes. And so Haggai tells us that when God is going to shake the nations, it means that he is going to bring about the truly earth-shaking, world-shattering event. The event that will shake everything up and change everything will be the coming of the desire of nations. The desire of every nation, whether they acknowledge him or not, shall come. See, whether we realize it or not, Jesus is the desire of every nation. He is the object of our deepest longings and our highest aspirations. And Jesus will exert an a irresistible draw on people. Even his enemies will be captivated by him. See, say what you will about Jesus, but 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. Jesus has been subjected to critical scrutiny. And yet for all that, two billion people around the globe and counting consider Jesus to be the object of their worship and their whole way of living life. Without a doubt, Jesus is the best known and most influential person who has ever lived. And what is perhaps most remarkable is that no other figure not Buddha, not Confucius, not Muhammad, no other person has exerted a greater cross-cultural influence than Jesus Christ. The geographical center of Buddhism remains in Asia. The geographical center of Islam remains in the Middle East. But the geographical center of Christianity continues to shift. Christianity, of course, was born in Jerusalem. And from there, it quickly spread to North Africa and to the Mediterranean east as far as India, from there to Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and then from the North Atlantic over to North America. But do you realize that the geographic center of Christianity today is not in the Western Hemisphere? No, it's in the global South. The majority of Christians today live in South America and Africa and Asia, which means that when you stop and imagine a Christian in your mind, you should picture a person from Brazil, from Zambia, or from China. And give it a decade or two, and China very well may become the largest country 
with the greatest population of Christians in the history of the world. You see, Christianity is not a white man's religion, and it is not a Western religion, never was. Jesus has always belonged to the world. He is the desire of every nation. And why is that? Well, it's because of what Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that you know the one and only God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Real life, true life, the good life, the kind of life that we dream of and long for comes from knowing Jesus. Jesus is the desire of every nation, whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we realize it or not. You may be interested to know that when Charles Wesley wrote that famous Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he included the verse that we often don't sing anymore. And I'm not going to sing it for you now because my pitch is not very good. But it opens like this. Come desire of every nation, fix in us thy humble home. Jesus is the desire of every nation. And his coming is the ultimate earth-shaking event. That is the promise of the Lord's coming. But that promise is accompanied by a warning, which Handel pulls from the book of Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 2, Malachi asks, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? This warning causes us to stop and ask ourselves, how do we envision Jesus? The comedian Will Ferrell made famous the character of Ricky Bobby in the film Talladega Nights. There's a famous scene in which Will Ferrell's character is saying grace at the dinner table, and he proceeds to pray to the tiny little baby Jesus, but this irritates his wife who interrupts him and tells him, you know, Jesus did grow up. You don't have to keep referring to him as a baby. In fact, it's odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. But Will Ferrell's character retorts that when she prays, she can pray to whoever she wants to. She can pray to the grown-up Jesus or the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus. But when he prays, he's going to pray to the tiny little baby Jesus. Why? Because he likes the Christmas Jesus best. <laughs> and this leads to a conversation among all those around the dinner table about how they prefer to think of Jesus and how they like to envision him. And for many of us, we too might prefer to pray to the eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn baby Jesus because a cute and cuddly Jesus is not a threat to us. But what we need to realize is that Jesus did grow up. And that's what Malachi reminds us of. And who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, or launderer's soap. Now, Malachi here refers to Jesus as refiner's fire. We might have positive associations with a fire, especially at Christmas time. We like the idea of gathering around an open fire, being warmed by it. It sounds cozy and comfortable, but only if that fire is contained. 
and kept at a safe distance. We certainly do not want that fire to ever touch us. But you see, that's the warning here that Malachi provides because the problem is that when the Lord comes, we cannot escape contact with this fire. Elsewhere in the scriptures, God is referred to as a consuming fire. And so we are kidding ourselves. We have far too small a a vision of Jesus. If we think that we could stand in the holy presence of God and not be consumed by the flames. And so this passage presents us with a real challenge. Both the image of the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap stress the severity of the experience. In the ancient world, when people laundered or washed their clothes, they used strong lye soap. And then after washing their clothes in the lye, they would lay out the clothes on rocks and beat it with a stick in order to dislodge the dirt. But do you realize that that ancient lye was super toxic? One taste of that lye would give you third-degree burns in your mouth and in your esophagus. And likewise, the refiner's fire is an intense image. A refiner would heat that fire up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be so hot, so intense, that it would melt metal. And Malachi is telling us that that is what the coming of Jesus is like. And John the Baptist picked up a similar image when he prepared the coming of Jesus. He told people in Matthew chapter 3 that he would baptize people with the waters of repentance. But he said that there was someone coming after him, mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And he will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he switches images and he says of the coming of Jesus that his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he stands ready to clear his threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will take the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire, with a fire that never goes out. So what is your vision of Jesus? Do you realize that Jesus grows up? And who can stand before him when he appeareth? If that is the warning that Malachi provides, then what hope do we possibly have of being able to endure his presence? What is the hope of his coming? Why should we celebrate it? Well, if Jesus is a refiner's fire, then it means that we have a choice to make. Either we will be consumed by that fire or we will be purified by it. Either we will be the wheat or we will be the chaff. There's no third option. And that's why Malachi goes on to say in verse 3, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. That is the purpose of this refining fire. But who are the sons of Levi? Well, the sons of Levi were simply the original priests who served in the tabernacle. Levi and his sons were the priests who served in the temple and offered sacrifices. But you see, God's plan from the very beginning is that all of his people would become a kingdom of priests. See, a priest is simply a a mediator, a bridge builder, a go-between. A priest connects people to God and God to people. And and God's plan from the very beginning is that within his kingdom, everyone would be a priest. 
Everyone would be a connector. Everyone would be someone who brings people to God. You see that right from the very beginning in Exodus 19. And so that is why in Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet tells us that one day it will no longer be necessary for one person to turn to his or her neighbor and say, know the Lord, know the Lord. Because on that day, everyone will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. But you see, who are the sons of Levi? Who's he talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We're all supposed to be priests. We're all supposed to be go-betweens. We're all supposed to be people who connect others to God. But we're not supposed to offer physical sacrifices. Jesus offered himself up once and for all as a sacrifice for sin. His death on the cross was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And therefore, if we are priests, a kingdom of priests, that means that we no longer offer physical sacrifices, but rather we're called to offer a spiritual sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. Our job now is simply to declare the goodness of who God is and to live lives of love. And that's why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that we are being built together like living stones into a spiritual house, a temple, so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. But if our sacrifices are going to be acceptable to God, well, then we need to be purified. We need to be cleansed. And that's the purpose of this fire. The reason why the fire was, was heated up to 2,000 degrees was because it needed to be intense enough to burn off the impurities. But if you heat gold up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, then the impurities will actually float to the top. And all you have to do is skim off the dross, and then what you're left with is pure gold. What you're left with is the real thing. And that is, what God, that is what God has promised to do for us. Now, I don't know if you remember the original setting, but the children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit, is actually a Christmas story. One day, a boy receives a velveteen rabbit stuffed with sawdust that's wedged into the top of his Christmas stocking. And it's got a little sprig of, of holly that's held between its two paws. And this velveteen rabbit becomes the boy's favorite toy. He takes it with him wherever he goes. So much so that eventually his, his boot button eyes begin to lose their shine and the, the pink lining of his ears turns gray. But the rabbit doesn't mind because he knows that to be loved like this by that boy means that he is real in the boy's eyes. Well, eventually the boy becomes ill. His face grows flushed. His body is so hot that it burns the rabbit when he holds him close. But again, that little rabbit doesn't mind because he knows that the boy needs him during his illness. And then finally, the boy recovers. The doctor arrives at the house and says that his entire room, the whole nursery, needs to be disinfected. And all of the books and all the toys that the boy played with in bed must be burned. And just then, the nanny sees the velveteen rabbit and lifts it up and says, but what about this old bunny? And the doctor says, that? 
That is just a mass of scarlet fever germs. Burn it at once. What nonsense. Get him a new one. He mustn't have it anymore. And with that, the Velveteen Rabbit is put outside and left beside the fire, ready to be burned. But just then, a real tear rolls down the Velveteen Rabbit's cheek and falls to the ground. And out of that tear, a mysterious flower begins to grow. And when the blossom opens, out steps a fairy. And the fairy explains that she is the fairy of nursery magic. She explains, I take care of all the playthings that the children have loved. And when they're old and worn out and the children don't need them anymore, then I come and take them away with me and turn them into real. Wasn't I real before? asked the little rabbit. You were real to the boy, the fairy said, because he loved you. But now you shall be real to everyone. Now you might say, well, that's just a charming story. But it may just be that fairy tales reveal more truth than we realize. Because this is what God has promised to do for us. To make us real, if we would only let him. C.S. Lewis famously wrote these lines in his book, Christianity, uh, Mere Christianity. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for, nothing less. You realize that this is what God has promised. And you see the connection. We may not be a mass of germs, but we are a mass of sin. And we need to be disinfected. We need to be cleansed of all of our faults and failures. We're a nasty mix of unkind thoughts, of harsh words, of selfish actions, of impure motives. And that is why no one can stand when he appeareth. That is why no one can abide his coming. If God were to catch sight of us and, and lift us up, justice would demand. What? That's just a mass of sin. Burn it at once. Get him a new one. He mustn't have that one anymore. You see, justice demands that in our sin we be consumed. But mercy demands that we be purified. And so how do we get through this dilemma? We realize that we have to make a choice. That we will either be purified or consumed. There is no third option. And either way, it sounds like a rather painful process. So how could we ever possibly pass through those flames and not be burned? Well, there's only one answer. Justice demands that we be consumed. Mercy demands that we be purified. And Jesus steps forward 
and allows the, the fires of God's judgment to fall on him so that they never fall on us. Do you realize that on the cross, Jesus is consumed by the flames so that we will be purified by those flames? And yes, the process will be long and sometimes painful, but we can rest assured that if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, no matter what flames we are forced to walk through, those flames will never torch us. They will only serve to perfect us. And you see, the very moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he begins that process of disinfecting us, cleansing us, purifying us, But that long and sometimes painful process will only be completed on the day that Jesus returns, when he comes again. Now, you might be someone who is acutely aware of your weaknesses and your shortcomings, your faults and your failures. And you might think to yourself that the impurities in me could never be burned off, not in a thousand lifetimes. But if that's the case, then I've got good news for you. Because 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus for our relationship with God rather than ourselves, then we become God's children. And he says, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. We have no idea what God has in store for us or who we will become. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, do you realize what John is telling us there? There's no need for purgatory or anything like that. You're not going to need an additional thousand years to burn off your impurities. No, all it will take is one look. One look at Jesus on the day that he returns, and all those remaining impurities in you will be burned up in an instant. You will be purified in a moment. All it will take is one look. And we have no idea what God has in store for us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will become radiant, dazzling, immortal creatures, pulsating with energy and love and wisdom and devotion, all the love and wisdom and devotion of Jesus himself. That is what he has in store for us. Nothing less. So who can abide on the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appeareth? Only the one, only the one whose life is hidden in Christ. So come to him, come to him now, the one who is the desire, whether they realize it or not, of every nation. Let us pray. Father, we pray that during this Advent season, you might correct our vision of who Jesus is. We pray that you might help us to see that he is the desire of every nation. He is the desire of all of our hearts. For he is the object of our deepest longings and our highest aspirations, whether we realize it yet or not. So come, desire of every nation, and fix in us thy humble home. We ask in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.